and it's been a joy. So thank you for your generosity. I'm starting a new sermon series today that I'm really excited about. It's called Too Good. Too Good. And today's sermon is called Put Your Mouth Where Your Faith Is. You've heard of the saying, put your money where your mouth is. But I'm saying put your mouth where your faith is. Start to say what you believe. Uh, and, and until you believe it, you can't say what is good. And so we're talking about the good news. And if you don't believe God is good, you can't pre- preach the good news. There is a God behind the good news, and he's a good God. So I want to, uh, as I've sat there thinking about what, in my own life, what has enabled me to go out and preach the good news, because we started this, this idea, this vision in the church of just one, that it's our responsibility, every single one of us. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility to win and disciple just one person this year. And some of us, I already had people say, I'm doing it this month, and some are doing, I'm doing it this week. So just one. It's your responsibility to go and win and disciple one. And I just realized in my own life, there are some things that have hindered me going out preaching good news. Um, and, and fundamentally, it boils down to two things in my life. It boils down to my picture of how effective the, the death of Jesus on the cross. So I want to ask you this question is, how effective was Jesus' death on the cross? Because when I believe that Jesus' death on the cross was absolutely powerful, stunning, it was wholly absorbing, it took all the sin of all mankind for all, man, uh, for all time and destroyed it, that God reached back in time, reached forward in time, took all the sin of all people and put it on his son Jesus. And then as Isaiah said, it was God's will to crush him. He crushed Jesus because of that sin was on him. God made him, as Second Corinthians says, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. God took our sin and destroyed it, completely obliterated it on the cross. And if you understand and believe that with all your heart, then sin is not a big issue for you because you can look at it in your own life and say, thank goodness, because I believe in Jesus, my sin, not in part, but the whole, it was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of my soul. And so when you, when you understand the power and the awesome glory of the cross, then sin is not a big issue. And when you turn around, you can face the worst sinner in the world and tell them that's nothing, my God can break you free. Do you understand if you believe in the power of the cross, telling the the good news of the power of the cross becomes easy. But if you don't believe in the power of the cross, if you have some anemic view of the cross, and maybe Jesus got most of it right, but there's a whole bunch that you have to add to his work so that you can get to heaven. If that's the message, then your, your gospel that you preach to people becomes about all the things that you need to add, and you better shine up, and you better start doing a different thing. Does that make sense? So if you're going to preach the good news about the gospel, you have to have a great view of the cross and what accomplished there because the Bible says that at the cross, Jesus made a public display of the enemy, triumphing over him by the cross. And every element that the enemy had over your life, Jesus took it away and nailed it to the cross and it was completely obliterated. And then he put a ring in his nose and he led him behind his chariot in triumphal procession. So if you have a magnificent view of the cross, then it's easy to preach the good news. It's easy to preach the victory. So how effective do you think Jesus' death on the cross was? Because for thousands of years, millions of sacrifices constantly were having to be made until that one sacrifice was made, and now no other sacrifice is necessary, the Bible says. Because in once for all, Jesus did it. Praise God. It's such a good news. When I start preaching this gospel, I get excited. I want to tell people. Secondly, how good do you really think God is? Because if you really think, if you really know for a fact that God is that good, He's just so unbelievably good, too good. If you know Him like that, then you want to go tell people, never mind all that, let me tell you about my God. 
Sharing the good news is easy when you have a magnificent view of the cross and you understand the good God that stands behind the good news. But if you think that God is mad and mean and, and vindictive, then, then it's hard to preach good news to people. Good news is fun to share. It really is. It's exciting to share good news. You want to share good news. Ever had such good news that you start telling the story and somebody in your family can't wait and they just blurt it out? It's just, I can't wait. You've got you to hear this. This is too good to be true. Good news loves to be shared. And we love sharing good news. We had a lady here who was diagnosed with stage four cancer and then she, she went through treatment and she came out and she's completely cancer free. You know how quickly that spread? Hey, did you hear? She's completely cancer free. Everyone's like, yes. We were trusting God for that. Good news is great to share. Hey, did you hear? They got sole custody. They got the adoption came through. Hey, did you hear? Got a promotion. Hey, did you hear? This thing happened. It's just like, whoa, this is so cool. Good news gets shared. Michelle and I went on vacation, and we, and we were the only two couples. There, there was, it was the middle of the week, and we were there, and there was one other couple, and the rest of the place was empty. And, and so we were out one night, and this guy came running up to us. He was like, hey, I just heard. After, I've been working on this project for four years, and I just heard they gave us the contract, and it, it's great. I'm rich. You know, he was, like, he was like, celebrate with me. I was like, yay, what's your name? You know, like, uh, good news, you can tell good news to strangers, it's not threatening. Jesus told us, go out into all the world and preach good news. That Greek word evangelion means the good news or the good telling, if you want to be literal. Go and tell people good things. The Latin for it means the, the good story. It's a good news, good story, good telling of the goodness of God. Go be like me and tell them good news, Jesus said. Most of what I've been taught, however, has about evangelism, it feels like bad news. Because I've been taught to rebuke people for their sins. I've been told to withdraw from them in case they contaminate me. I must disengage from people and hold up God's righteous standard in their eyes and in hopes that they'll see how far short they've fallen. And prove to them, you're a low-down, dirty sinner, because we all are low-down, dirty sinners. And I have to be preachy. And if there was a cartoon of what I look like, it's like this, this little gnarled finger pointing at people with a frown on my face. That's what it feels like. That's what evangelism has felt like to me. I have to go out on the streets and tell people, you ugly thing, you better shine up. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, go and preach bad news and good advice. You're a sinner, stop sinning. Bad news, good advice. Jesus never told us to go preach that. He said, go and preach good news. There's a savior for you. You can be completely healed. All your sin can be completely wiped away. It's good news, no? So I was taught that in order to get people saved, I have to convince them of their status as a sinner. And I understand this because John says, if you say you have no sin, then, then, then you're a liar and, and Jesus can't. You have to acknowledge I need a savior before you can accept the savior and then he can wash you clean. So I get that. But that's not the first basic idea that we should come out of our mouths when we're talking to unsafe people. Most people in the church are in touch or outside the church are in touch with their own failings and their weaknesses and would prefer not to have those brought up in public. I don't want my shameful acts or my weaknesses or my sins brought up and discussed in a public forum and neither do you probably. Especially if it comes from people who act like they've got everything together and are somewhat arrogant. 
And Jesus showed us how to do this. Because Jesus, who lived this, the perfect model of life, right? He said, I, I do nothing except what I've seen my father do. I say nothing but what I've seen, heard my father say. So you have to understand that Jesus is perfect theology. He is the perfect, he's the absolute perfect representation of God, which is exactly what Hebrew says. The son is the exact radiance of God's being. He's the exact image of who God is like. And so Jesus, if you wanna know who God is like, it's like Jesus. And you can't swing a cat in the scriptures. You can't turn around anywhere in the scriptures and find Jesus talking to somebody that freaked the religious leaders out. Jesus, the, the, the people who are most uh, the embodiment of sin, everything we don't want our children to get involved with, if, you, if that's the person, you'd find Jesus talking to them. Jesus allowed a prostitute to wash his feet and wipe, uh, wipe his feet with her tears and her hair, which made him, under their eyes, uh, ceremonially unclean because she was an unclean woman. And Simon the Pharisee who was there doubted that Jesus could even be a prophet. He was allowing this. And he talked to the woman at the well who'd been married and divorced five times and was now checking up with the sixth guy. And he, she was alone in the countryside with a, with a Jew and she was a Samaritan and that was usually not a good sign. Only women who were prostitutes tended to do that. So when these disciples come back and find Jesus talking to her, they're slightly embarrassed with Jesus. You can't be talking to this woman. Jesus went into Samaritan villages and he told stories about Samaritans that had good things to say about them and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They said, you cannot tell, you can't do that. You can't go into their villages, Jesus. He went into the homes of tax collectors and into the homes of Roman centurions and he went into the bedrooms of sick women and the marketplaces where the crowds were rowdy and swearing and he engaged with people where they lived and he never made them feel like God was far away from them. In fact, his message was, God has come very near. Is this, is this freaking you out just a little, just a little bit uncomfortable? Because this is what Jesus was like. He made people uncomfortable. And you say, well, well, Greg, but Jesus told people not to sin. Yes, he did. He told people not to sin. But after he had healed them and after he had sorted their lives out. And the woman who was caught in adultery and they brought it to him and Jesus said, hey, there's no one here to condemn you. She said, no one. He said, you know what? I don't condemn you either. So when he took condemnation off her, he said, now, don't go sin, don't stop that sin. To the guy, who had, the cripple who he had healed, and he, and he was walking around and they were getting all knotted with him and said, how do you, you, you walked on the Sabbath. He said to he said, Tim, listen, listen, you healed. The guy, oh, thank you, Jesus. He said, listen, don't go sin again. Something worse might happen to you. Don't, don't engage in the sin that created this problem. Stop that. So Jesus did say, sin is not an option for you, but it was after he had shown kindness, it was after he had ministered grace, it was after he had compassion on people. He demonstrated love and kindness and compassion and patience and he shared good news and the good news about his father. And somehow in my life, legalism had got a hold of me and sold me the idea that I had to shun sinners and had have an adversarial attitude towards them. And if I did that, that that was gonna hold me, that was preaching the gospel. That was holding the Christian line. And somehow in today's world, when somebody engages, some believer engages with some person who's not saved, who, who we would consider to be in the them category, when one of us engages with one of them, we kind of get a little nervous, like, what are you doing? Well, I, I'm, I'm doing what Jesus said we should do. I'm, I'm going to, to the world. But who let down the drawbridge, you know? <laughs> Who said, who said you could go out into the world and do that? Well, Jesus, Jesus said, 
Matthew 9, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think a significant problem for us in sharing good news is that in our minds it often seems too good to be true. But God loved us while we were in our worst state, before our obedience and before we could reciprocate His love so that we thought we could earn His love, He sent His Son to die for me. When I was shaking my fist in rebellion in His face, in that moment He sent Jesus to come and die for me. It wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because I was lovable. God loved me before I was lovable implies I'm lovable now. He loves people. God loves people. God didn't love people because Jesus died for them. Jesus died for people because God loved them. Get that right. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Wasn't His Son sacrificed to cause God to love you? He loved you before Jesus. That was the motivating factor. God loves people people. And God loves the people around you that you don't particularly like. And God likes the people who we think are the worst of sinners. And God loves them. And His heart beats for them. And if the Pauls of our generation are going to get saved, it's going to take somebody like you and me going to them and telling them about how good God is. Jesus gave us this responsibility to go and preach good news to the world. And Paul called this the, the, the message of reconciliation. Paul said, we've been given this ministry. Jesus came and ministered, and his ministry was to reconcile people to God. And he accomplished that on the cross beautifully, Paul said, but it didn't end there. When Jesus' ministry of reconciliation was completed, he gave us the message of reconciliation to go out and proclaim. We are to carry on the assignment that Jesus perfectly managed, and we are now to continue that this is what Corinthians 5 says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them because God counted people's sins against his own son. He no longer counts people's sins against them. And the only way God is going to count your sins against Jews is if you reject the sacrifice of His Son. But if you accept the sacrifice of His Son, God says, in the ledger of heaven, Jesus paid for those sins. And when you believed, He said, all right, it's, that, that goes over from your account into Jesus' account, and you bear them no more. And you are innocent and blameless and holy in His sight. And it comes by faith, not by your own works. And so the moment you believe, that all accounting, that just accrues. But if you don't want Jesus to, to be the one who took your sins, you reject Jesus, then God says, okay, well, then that'll come back into your account. Then you're responsible for your sin. But God was in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Imagine what it was like for Jesus when he walked up and he saw the worst of sinners. And Jesus, Jesus, I think this is what happened internally. Jesus said, Dad, I'm going to pay for that sin to you. And the father said, yes, you are. So, so okay, I got it. And then he'd walk up and he'd look and go, I'm going to pay for that sinner as well. And his father said, yep. That's why Jesus could look past the sin and look at the person. Because Jesus already knew I'm paying for that sin. And you know what? We can look back to the beautiful finished work of the cross. And I don't care how big a sinner they are. You can look them in the eye and know Jesus already paid for all of this sin. 
Even this sin, even this grossness, even this shame, Jesus paid for it all. And so I I can have a confidence. Do you see what I'm saying? If you have a good view of the cross and you have a great view of your God, you can proclaim good news and you proclaim it with boldness and there's no fear. This is the good news for you. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That scripture is in the context of the message of reconciliation. You're supposed to preach that to unbelievers. We've used the analogy of a car before, but I think it's apt now that sometimes we preach as though, if, imagine if I uh, was going away for six months and I wanted to bless Tom and I didn't have time, so I, on the way to the airport, I, I scream by the Mercedes dealer and I say, what's your best car? And they go, this one's whiz-bang, $150,000, got hot and cold running, everything. And I say, I want one. And I pay, I pay the cash and I go, I want this full service for the next 10 years. And I pay that. And I go, all the tires for the next 20 years, I want to pay for that. And then, oh, by the way, $300 worth of gas coming, cards coming to him every month. They just delivered on, and, yeah, and then everything. I take care of the insurance, zero deductible insurance. I take care of everything. And I say, I want this car to go to Tom Borsick but I've got to rush now, I don't have time. So I come to one of you and I go, hey, 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 I, I just gave, uh, I just paid for a car for Tom. There's a, there's a glorious car, it's just waiting for him now. Just tell him to use my name when he comes down to the dealership and they'll give him his car. There's a great inheritance, I've paid entirely for it and I'm off. But this person who's supposed to go and tell Tom is not sure about who I am and he, it's too good to be true. He can't believe, nobody would do that. So he goes to Tom, he says, listen, Greg told me to tell you that he, there's a car. I'm not really sure of the details. I think he wanted to bless you. He said he paid for it, but I don't believe that. I mean, I think, I think he put it down. Maybe he's put it down positive. I don't know, but I think you're gonna probably have to work some, but I think there's a car. It's time for us to go. You know what Jesus did? He, Jesus bought an, a beautiful, a glorious inheritance for you. And, and the jury's not out. He's already paid for it. He's not still making up his mind. He has paid for it. It is entirely done. It is signed and sealed in every way. And now he says, in my name, you can come and ask for it. Come and requisition what is your inheritance. And we're supposed to go and tell people that. And we go, you know, I'm not really sure. That sounds too good to be true. I mean, I've heard about a great inheritance, but I think you should probably work. You're going to have to work hard. And you're going to have to shine up because there's some things in your life I wouldn't buy a car for. Does that make sense? Do you understand the gospel that most of the church preaches? It's not the gospel at all, Paul said. It's not the gospel at all. I'm so, Galatians, I, I'm, I'm, astound, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of God and are turning to another gospel that doesn't require you to live in the grace of God. The gospel requires grace and faith, not works and unbelief. I've come to realize that what we believe Jesus accomplished at the cross and what we believe about God will inform the message that we preach. And if I can just get you to see a glorious picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and more importantly, if I can get you to understand the goodness of God, then you can go out and preach good news because you know it's backed by a good God. If you have a grand and beautiful understanding of the cross, it makes a big difference. And if you have a grand and profound understanding of the goodness of God, you can boldly proclaim good news because you understand there's a God that stands behind that. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
In other words, he implied that you become like what you worship, or as our friend Leif says, you become what you behold. Tozer said that if we could get an accurate answer to the question of what comes to mind when people think about God, we could predict their spiritual future. Because you're going to become like who you think God is. Who God is has profound implications for who we are. And John Mark Comer said, if you think of God as homophobic or racist, mad at the world, this distorted vision of reality will shape you into a religious bigot who is, wait for it, homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. Right? Who we have grown to become is the most accurate assessment of who you believe God to be. Who you have grown to become is the most accurate assessment of who you think God is. Because we all want to please Him. We're all trying to be like Him. And if you're loving and kind and generous and gentle and compassionate and gracious and faithful, otherwise known as the fruit of the Spirit, then you're becoming like Him. The fruit of the Spirit is simply when you allow the Holy Spirit lordship of your life, He begins to make His own nature manifest through you. The fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that happen inside of us when we allow the Holy Spirit's lordship. And so when you, because the Holy Spirit's not faking that, that is who He is. So when He is Lord of your life, that fruit is made manifest through your life. He is consistently who God is. You say, Greg, what are you asking us to do in this just one thing? I'm asking you to become like Jesus and then go share good news. So we started the sermon with one goal, with a sermon series, to embolden you to preach good news. That seems too good to be true. 1 Peter 2 says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk now, so that you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. There's an implication there that right at the outset, right at your salvation, you taste the Lord's goodness. He says, listen, now that you've tasted the Lord's goodness, I want you to crave pure spiritual milk so you can grow up out of your salvation. But that fundamental building block of the foundation that needs to be settled in every believer's life is an understanding of the goodness of God. Romans 2 says, Don't, do you show contempt for the riches and kindness of God, His forbearance and His patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. At the, at the very foundation of the way God communicates this message of reconciliation is that He demonstrates His kindness, His goodness, His tolerance, His patience, not His anger, His wrath, and His condemnation of mankind. Somehow, somehow, I got caught up in missing this idea, and I got caught up in selling condemnation to sinners. Because that's what sounds right to religious people. Let's sell some condemnation. Yo, ugly things. And it's nice to preach condemnation. It feels like I'm better than everybody. It's a, I, can, I can wave my finger, but that's not the gospel we're called to preach. We're called to preach about the good God whose unbelievable grace sent his own son to die. That, that means great news for you. When God wanted to show himself to Moses, he said, because Moses said, God, I'm, I'm, 
I'm thrilled that you're doing miracles among us. I'm happy that you're leading us. But I want more than just knowing about you. I want to know you. Could you show me your glory? Could you tell me who you are? I want to know you. And God came down and he said to Moses, because you've asked that, I'll come down and I'll tell you my name. And he said to Moses, I want to be known by this for the rest of all eternity. I'm going to reveal myself. He said, by the way, Moses, I didn't talk to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about this. They only knew me from a distance. But I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to reveal who I am. Much of theology is about the details about God. He's ineffable, he's you know, supreme, he's sovereign, he's you know, omnipresent, he's omnipotent. He's, you know, all of these things, and we, we run through a litany of things that we think, but if I told you about my wife that she's five foot six, 45 years old, 110 pounds, whatever, you know. I can tell you the facts about my wife, she's not true, she's 100 pounds. I can tell you the facts about my wife, which may or may not be true, but that says nothing about who she is as a person. Moses was not saying, tell me the facts. I know some facts. Abraham, Isaac, and Jake told, told us about the promises you've made, but I wanna know who you are. And God says, I'm gonna tell you who I am because I can tell you about my wife, her capacity to love and show mercy. It's unbelievable. Her hunger for the body of Christ. I can tell you about what moves her in the night about the body of Christ. I can tell you what makes her giggle uncontrollably. If you wanna know, I can tell you about who she is or I can tell you the details about her life. Do you understand the difference? And so when Moses said to God, I want you to tell me who you are. I, I don't, yeah, this is great that you're with us. I'm We've seen amazing miracles, but I want to know you. And God says, I'll I'll tell you my name. I'll come down and I'll show you. And the first thing God spoke about is is compassionate and gracious. And so I want to get there. The the word for compassionate he used was rahum in the Hebrew. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. When God said, I want you to know the very first thing, he said, my name is Yahweh. The very first thing I want you to know about me is I'm compassionate and gracious. The, the Hebrew he used there is rahum wehanum. It's an it's a onomatopoeic phrase that complements one another. It's supposed to rhyme. He said, I am compassionate and gracious. And I want to just talk to that because that's who God wanted us to know. First and foremost, this is who I am. Rahun, this compassionate idea, is it's a feeling of deep compassion. It's a word of movement. It's a word of deep emotion. It comes from the root word, which means the female womb. Sometimes it's translated in in the Greek as the bowels of mercy. It means deep, deep compassion, intense, visceral parental love. Does it make sense? That feeling that a mom or a dad gets if your kid needs you, you're, you're there. And it's not even a conscious, it's like a, it's deeper. It's a subconscious, I'm there. I love this child. They've done nothing but eat and poop and I'm in, sold. I'll give my life. Every parent in the room knows what I'm talking about. And when God chose to reveal himself, the very first thing he said is, that's the way I feel about you. Love that about him. The two mothers who came before Solomon and they both said, this baby's ours. And Solomon said, all right, let's cut the baby in half. And the, and the one mother that uses this word, Rahum, who she was compassionate towards her child. She said, no, no, don't cut the, she can have the baby. Solomon said, that's the mom. Because he understood. That's what, that's what parents feel. That right there, that's the real parent. 
Isaiah 49 uses the same word about God, Rahun. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not. He said, even if that's conceivably possible that a mother might, I won't forget you, says the Lord. And Psalm 103 talks about the, the father's heart of God. So there's a mother heart and a father. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. Again, you'll find many, many places in the, in the, uh, the scriptures where they, they allude back to this Exodus 34 that we're dealing with, where God revealed himself. Many, many people go back to that and say, oh, let's bring that into what I'm talking about. And here's an example. Verse 13, as a father has compassion, Rahun, on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed. And then Luke 15, the story that we know well, the, the, the prodigal is coming home and his father's looking at the horizon and he sees his son a long way off. And the Bible says, <clears throat> but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. That word, Rahum, he, he, he was moved. Blew past convention, blew past uh, what, what was decorum. He blew past what other people thought. He just saw his beaten up son coming home and he took off running. Embarrassingly, tears streaming down his face, screaming at the top of his lungs, my son has come home. That, my friends, is Rahum. And when God showed himself, he said, this is who I am. I care about you like that. This Rahum is the mother waking up halfway to the child's bedroom because the child started crying and the mother's not even awake yet and she's already up and running towards the bed. Every mother in the room knows what I'm talking about. This is the father who's jumping up and electrified because he heard fear in the voice of his child. Something's about to hurt my child and it will not while I'm alive. That feeling, that is Rahum. And God said, when I want you to know me, I want you to understand that this is what I'm like, compassionate moved. I feel deeply about what's going on in your life. And I want you to just take a moment to let that settle and drink in that beauty because it applies to you. And now when you've settled that, that's the way our Father thinks. I want you to turn around and look at the people around you who are not yet saved because that's the way He feels about them too. This is who I am. This is what I want you to know about me. I am Rahum, Wehanun. Wehanun means the gracious God. Rahum, Wehanun. Where compassion is the feeling part of this revelation, grace, graciousness, grace is that in action. God pours out resource to move, to supply, to help, to protect. This uh, graciousness of God is the God who moves on our behalf takes various forms in Scripture. Sometimes it's God showing up to protect His people, sometimes to guide them, sometimes to strengthen, sometimes to fight for them, sometimes to encourage them. This word is used in various contexts where the Lord was gracious to His people, stepped in, stopped enemies, worked on their behalf. 2 Kings 13, Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. And the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How about Psalm 86? But Lord, your nurturing love is tender and gentle. You are slow to get angry, yet so swift to show your faithful love. This is the Passion Translation from, Ezekiel, uh, sorry, from Exodus 34. You are full of abounding grace and truth. Bring me to your grace fountain so that your strength becomes mine. Be my hero. Come to my rescue of your servant once again. 
This is God stepping in. This is God made available. This is God's help in practical ways in our lives. And God said, I want you to understand this is who I am, Moses. I am compassionate and I am gracious. I feel deeply and I'm executing on your behalf. The way this gospel works is you proclaim truth and people believe it. And when people believe truth, the power of God is unleashed to make it so in your life. Your job is to bring the faith. Your job is to bring faith equity. God's job is to do everything else. That's why you proclaim the gospel and everybody who believes the gospel get their lives revolutionized and transformed. <laughs> Praise God. I've tried to approach God on the basis of my own good works. Never works. Lord, you, you basically owe me because I've been wonderfully righteous and look at what I've done. It didn't work for me. And I've tried to approach, approach God on the basis of my, my injury. I'm a victim. God, people have been so mean to me, and basically because they've been so mean to me, you owe me. Right? No, it never works for me. Being the victim has never worked. I've tried, I promise. It didn't work for me. I found the best way to receive from God is to come based on His nature. Not based on my need or based on, you know, Lord, I've, I've earned this, but God, you're, you're the gracious and compassionate God. <laughs> and I need grace and compassion, so obviously I came to you. I just want to hang out in your presence. I just want to rub shoulders with you. I just want some of your grace, just a, just a percent of your grace and your kindness, just a percent of your compassion. Could you, I'm just going to hang out here with you because God is compassionate and gracious. That is who he is. He's not, he's not adding on stuff. He's not putting on clothing. That's his DNA. That's who he is to the marrow. And it's what you and I can expect from him. This is exactly the problem that Jonah had. Because the Lord came to him and said, Jonah, I want you to preach to the Ninevites who were Assyrians. And, and the Israelites hated the Assyrians because for about 100 years, the Assyrians had been oppressing the Israelites. And Jonah hated them. And God said, Jonah, I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And he said, no way. And so if you look at the map, Jonah gets on a boat and he goes southwest. He goes towards Spain. He goes in the, exact, the last city on the map, the known map. That's where Jonah is headed, away from Nineveh. And so the Lord hooks up a big fish and you know, you know the story. Now, the, the Ninevites were, were fish, Dagon, the fish god. They believed they had this theory that one day that this Dagon, the fish god, is gonna spit out this prophet out of the mouth of a fish and he's gonna tell you the way of salvation. So there's a couple of people on the Ninevite beach and they're sitting there and this big giant fish comes and spits out this guy who's, who's looking a little ticked and he's got little you know, fish guts hanging off the side of his ear. And he starts screaming at them, you, better, you guys better repent because God's gonna judge you. So the whole city repents. And he's not trying to good, do a good job. Jonah is tick. Jonah doesn't want to be there. He hates these people. He's not trying to preach grace. He says, you go and read what he says. God's going to get you, you ugly things. But something strange happens because they all repent. And even the king repents and they say, God, please forgive us. And the Lord says, okay, great. Jonah, go and tell him I'm not going to do it. Jonah says, I'm not, no. And the Lord relents and he doesn't do the destruction that he promised. And this is, read with me, Jonah. He prayed to the Lord and he said, isn't this what I said, Lord? I told you, I told you this was going to be. When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It was better for me to die than to live, sulking outside of Nineveh. He says, I knew, I knew this is what you like. 
Now, I just want to say, I just pray that some of us have the faith of Jonah because Jonah at least knew it in his marrow. I, I, I know that's what you like. I don't want to tell them, Lord, because I know what you like. You're going to be compassionate and gracious to them. And there are some people in your life, the worst of sinners, the most obnoxious in your, the thorn under your saddle. We're called to be like our Father and proclaim His goodness with good news. We're, we're supposed to love the undeserving and to pray for those who persecute us and to show mercy because that's what's in our family DNA. So that you may be children of your Father, Jesus said, or children of the Most High God. I want to close with just two questions. Because if you understand the cross and you understand the good the goodness of the God who stands behind the good news. If you know, if you know in your marrow that he is compassionate and gracious. Rahum, where? No. If you know he's that compassionate and gracious, and you can turn around and face anybody and pro proclaim that compassion and that grace, because that's who he is. The good news proceeds from the goodness of the God who authored it. So I dare you, I dare you to go out into this week and preach some good news to somebody, especially to those you don't think deserves it. So I have two questions. Who are your enemies? So Greg, who am I supposed to preach this to? Who are your enemies? Who's the most obnoxious person at work? or in your family? Number two, who do you have the daily opportunity to be compassionate and gracious to? Well, I don't think I can be compassionate and gracious because they're not deserving of compassion and grace. Like I was. Like you were, maybe. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. <clears throat> before I loved him, before I served him, his heart was moved towards me. Many, many times, even before I called, he stepped in on my behalf and saved me. And he's done the same for you. And he's doing the same for them. I dare you. I dare to be praying for somebody this week and to go show compassion and grace and be like your father. Let's pray together. Father, would you show us who to talk to this week? Would you give us open doors, Lord, to just talk about the God who is compassionate and gracious? Lord, when I think about this for my own life, I'm just so blown away and amazed and grateful, so deeply appreciative, Father, that you are the gracious, compassionate God. And Lord, the simple truth is it's because of that that we live, move, and have our being. Because if you weren't, we would have ceased to exist long ago. Empower us, Lord, to speak this message to a hurting world. In Jesus' name.
Amen.